Hi, hello again. It's Dallas. Thank you again for joining me on the podcast, the podcast where I mainly talk about drawing. And today we will be talking specifically about drawing and why we draw. I realize that this is a very large topic. So this is going to happen in installments. Every once in a while, I'll have another episode where I talk about more reasons and perhaps go more in depth about the reasons why we draw. So for today, I'm going to be reading a variety of articles, not in their entirety, just quotes I've pulled out. We're going to read a little Mason. We're going to read Florence Monkhouse, of course, John Ruskin, Wordsworth, and I think Juliet Williams is in there too. So thanks for tuning in. We're going to jump right in. This is a PR article called Drawing Lessons by Florence Monkhouse. And the main idea in this is how drawing is educative. It says in the beginning, drawing is but a study full of deep meanings and vitally affecting everything they see in the course of their day. So just to open it up there, this is about much more than enjoying a pretty picture someone has drawn or painted. This is a serious area of study. Of course, Charlotte Mason knew this, recognized it, and so she had it taught in her schools. I believe that Florence Monkhouse also said in her article that she wished that children would study it throughout the course of their schooling, and she thought it was such a pain that they had to sometimes be taken out of their drawing classes to study more in other subjects that they were falling short in and she just thought that that was a very sad thing that they had to be pulled away from drawing classes this is volume two charlotte mason it's under the heading nature knowledge thus our first thought with regard to nature knowledge is that the child should have a living personal acquaintance with the things he sees it concerns us more that he should know bistort from persicaria, hawkweed from dandelion, and where to find this and that and how it looks, living and growing, than that he should talk about epigenous and hypogenous. All this is well in its place, but should come quite late, after the child has seen and studied the living growing thing in situ and has copied color and gesture as best he can. So this is an area of study. Drawing is an area of study where it very well complements nature knowledge and scientific pursuits. Mason always said that actual knowledge of seeing and feeling and touching and smelling and breathing the thing is actual scientific knowledge. So what is a better way to get out there and observe these things in nature than to draw them. One thing this makes me think of is the fact that in her 
teaching philosophy, the child is brought into relationship with all of this course of broad study. We have history, math, science, nature, poetry, and now we have drawing and the arts. And we are more brought into relationship with the things in nature. And we can do that through drawing them. We are able to closely observe, to sit with it and really capture that visual image into our mind. And that would probably make it go back into the long-term memory. The part where she says in situ means in its place. I'm sure that's a French expression. It makes me think of the way that G.W. Collingswood of the Fasol Club papers instructed his students that he, it would usually be a natural object that he was having them consider and draw. And it, he highly recommended that it be where it was found. I see a lot of wisdom in that because you're getting the full picture. Um, as Mason said, the form and the gesture of it is in situ. That is something that we're going to remember far more because all of our senses are included in a time where we're drawing something as it lives and grows. We're smelling the smells of the area we are. We're feeling the breeze. And I think there's brain-body connections being made that you wouldn't have if you were just copying lines and shapes from a photograph. Obviously, you'd be in a different environment that's not giving you that extra set of input. We all know that the more parts of your brain and senses that are engaged in a manner of study, then we're more able to quickly recall those pieces of information. They are, they are literally forming a relationship with us. So I really like that idea. And I think it is true. Otherwise, I wouldn't be telling all of you. Now I'll be reading a section from actually Collingswood himself. This is in one of his PR articles that he wrote about the Fasol Club papers. He says, But when our books, as in Arden, are running brooks, and when we listen to the lessons of the trees, what sorts of notes are we to take? It is only a part of the teaching of nature that can be put into words. Much that she says, and that we do well to know, cannot be written down in characters of any language, except that of painting. She speaks to us in forms and colors, and the impressions we receive are lost unless we can note them down in form and color. The laws we discern are incompletely stated in printer's type. Indeed, they are often quite invisible even to scientifically trained men, whose science means only book learning, who have not the artist's eye for lines of structure and movement. It is not merely a question of the amount of enjoyment received, but of actual perception and instruction. 
Examples could be given of serious mistakes arising from the want of an artist's eye to observe natural phenomenon and an artist's hand to record them. But the value of drawing as an aid to science study has been so generally admitted that nothing need be said if it were not for a widespread notion that the instantaneous camera has replaced the sketchbook and that the young student of the 20th century will only need to buy a Kodak in order to beat all the old observers. We see there in that segment that more of what I was talking about, a relationship being formed with the subject that we are drawing. And he really also did not like that the camera was coming into prevalence and popularity in that time. And I think I'll be talking more about that on a different episode about the camera versus drawing from life. But we can just chew on that for a minute. I like how he said, the way that nature speaks to us is different from other areas of learning. We don't read them in a book. We see them with our eyes and we feel them and hear them when we're in an environment. So this is actually a way of narrating. Drawing is a different way that we narrate what we know and we interpret it back onto the page. Now we'll talk about the teaching of drawing and its place in education. And that is by Juliet Williams. And this is either the Parents Review or the PNEU. To give you a little bit of context, she was just talking about the old way of drawing, which she's glad she wasn't taught this way, but was to copy basically a, a work of art that a painter had done. Or she said in some cases that the students would copy a, I'll find it, ah, the very advanced drew from casts of the antique, and they'd spend months getting one absolutely correct drawing. However, she says, not as a rule till they left school did they draw much from nature. This old-fashioned method taught a certain facility with brush or pencil, but helped little in the education of mind and eye. I doubt if it even taught patience. I have noticed that a number of people have quite an extraordinary capacity for correct copying who cannot do anything from nature or memory. I'm going to pause there because I find this to be true of people growing up today and actually even myself when I was studying in my high school years, I don't remember copying from life all that often. Um, I, yeah, I copied from photographs. So it would have been the same idea of copying an already produced image. So that's what it is. It's just copying. It's not taking in the information intelligently and transferring what is represented three-dimensionally onto a two-dimensional page for yourself. So I would say that what I was doing was not really narrating. It was just parroting. 
And then when I began to draw from life in later high school and college, I thought, oh, this is hard because it was. And even then, I wasn't even drawing from nature. We drew in the studio. So it was a lot of people. So in one sense, yes, from nature, a human being is a created being. But drawing outside uh, landscapes and animals, growing things is quite another challenge. So, And then she also says... They didn't do anything from nature or memory. She continues, It is rather a mechanical process, I think. The copying. The root idea of the modern teacher of drawing is to help the children to see, to remember, and express themselves. To see well, to remember intelligently what they see, and eventually use it to express themselves rather than to produce finished drawings of concrete objects. To draw an object however simple that is a solid thing, not a flat reproduction of its outline, requires three processes. Observation, reflection or mental digestion, and expression. We teachers do all we can to help the children to observe correctly and reflect on what they have seen, and we generally leave them more or less free to express it in their own individual ways. So, that is more narration talk there. To me, that says the child is gathering this visual information for themselves from the real world through their two eyes, and figuring out how to represent that accurately on a two-dimensional paper. It is difficult, but other narration is difficult as well. But it is really, truly the work of our education. Okay, we'll switch gears a little bit here. And I was reading a Wordsworth book the other day of a collection of his poems. And I came across this one that I enjoyed. So, this is William Wordsworth. The poem is called, Vain is the Glory of the Sky. Glad sight, wherever new with old, is joined through some dear home-born tie. The life of all that we behold depends upon that Mr. I. Vain is the glory of the sky. The beauty vain of field and grove, unless while with admiring eye we gaze, we also learn to love. I like this because he's saying, We gaze, we also learn to love. And we do it with admiring eyes. And so. To me, another reason to draw would be to appreciate nature and what God has created. And when other than in drawing are you staring at something for up to 40 minutes or more and taking in all of the details and imprinting it into our brain? Inevitably, when I'm at the end of a drawing, 
I just am in awe of God's creation and how intricate it is and how everything works together. And even if I have felt like the lighting has changed too much within this half hour for what I consider to be a good drawing because it's difficult when the light is changing. That exercise in and of itself gives me praise to my creator because all of those scenes that he painted before my eyes within the course of half an hour and all the the color changes that happened are just magnificent. So, which this actually brings me well to our next food for thought and John Ruskin has a lot a lot to say about this same thing that Wordsworth was saying here he holds God's beauty and creation as the standard of beauty and really a lot of the time when he's writing about drawing he reflects it back onto God and his creation and enjoying God and his creation. And along those lines, Wordsworth and Ruskin had similar ideas about this. Ruskin wrote so much about it, and here's one of the things I came across as I was reading his chapter on color in The Laws of the Fasol. But I believe you will find the standard of color I am going to give you an extremely safe one. The morning sky. Love that rightly with all your heart and soul and eyes, and you are established in foundation laws of color. The white, blue, purple, gold, scarlet, and ruby of morning clouds are meant to be entirely delightful to the human creatures whom the clouds and light sustain. Be sure you are always ready to see them the moment they are painted by God for you. How beautifully put is that? Doesn't that make you want to get up early to see the sunrise every morning? God is painting us a beautiful landscape every morning. We should use his standards for our standards of color, beauty, and taste beginning thoughts to this book too are great um ruskin also says that all great art is praise so i'd like to read that section but it would be better for us that all the pictures in the world perished than that the birds should cease to build nests and it is precisely in its expression of this inferiority that the drawing itself becomes valuable. It is because a photograph cannot condemn itself that it is worthless. The glory of a great picture is its shame and the charm of it in expressing the pleasure of a loving heart that there is something better than the picture. Take a moment to let that sink in. That is always great encouragement for me when I'm drawing because I tend to get wrapped up in representing the thing perfectly, which 
even if we're doing a fairly good job, we're never doing it perfectly. But if I can reframe drawing in my mind as a way to see how I fall short of God's glory, then that increases my humility and it does increase my joy while I do it because I'm never going to be as perfect as God, but I can sure enjoy everything he has created. But Raskin also says he would take a bird's nest in its actuality over a painted picture of it. So really that is the thing, the object of our admiration should be God's creation and not the thing that we are creating. So I don't know if you've ever had that thought before and I don't know if you've ever read The Laws of the Fasol or anything John Ruskin has read or written. Um, but yeah, it's this has been one of those books, The Laws of the Fasol, Principles of Drawing and Painting from the Tuscan Masters. One of my heavy reads. It's, it's a lot to chew on, so I end up putting it down about every page to just think about what I've read. And then I also want to try to implement the new information into the drawing that I'm doing as a way to narrate it. And yeah, it's been difficult because he's a little bit more nitpicky and um, I guess confident in what he sees as the standard which I appreciate because beauty does have a standard. So he's just been a great person to read as really holding to that and not wavering. So I highly recommend The Laws of the Fusil. And I think if you're not even studying, if you're studying art history, it would be a great book. If you're studying natural history, um, so many. He's a great writer. So if you like to read and you like to read good things, read that book. Wordsworth is great too. So please feel free to look up these resources that I'm always quoting from on your own. And then you probably have different thoughts about them. They are still deep ideas and very good. Don't take my word for it. And that way you, you'll be reading it in context and you'll be getting uh, the full scope of what is being talked about. All right. We're going to have our weekly installment of a daily dose of Mason. Or I guess I should say a weekly dose of Mason since all these go out on a week-by-week -week basis. It's basically where I'm going to talk about one section of Charlotte Mason's work, and it will probably be the one that I'm reading through with my book group right now, because it's fresh on my mind, and I'm just making all these great connections. So we're still reading through volume four ourselves, and this is where she's talking about benevolence 
and I didn't write the page number down here, but it's one of the Lords in Waiting of the Heart. So she says, Benevolence does not use strong language about the joiner when he comes across a door that will not shut or a window that will not open. He knows that the joiner at bottom is a fine fellow who probably has not been put in the way of making the best of himself and is so content with slipshod work. Therefore, the gaping door and immovable window stir benevolence up to bring better thoughts before people generally so that other joiners may turn out better work. I really like how she puts that. She something we talked about in our book group this week was how Mason is always holding us up and assuming the best of the reader. And so as she's going through describing all of these things of our hearts and our, our minds and ourselves, she talks about the good side. Then she talks about the flip side of each and as she calls it, the demons of each quality of ourselves. So this is one area where she's saying that a benevolent person or the benevolence in us would cause us to, instead of just focusing on this negative thing and then automatically saying that the person has poor character or the person is stupid look what terrible work they did she says bring better thoughts before people generally so as to uplift the culture or the people you are around so that they will end up turning out better work i just see this as being a way to elevate our fellow man and serve one another by assuming the best of them. But then also in our daily dealings with the people around us to bring good thoughts before them, good worthy thoughts before them so that they will produce better things. And this is something that is my task in homeschooling. I am supposed to bring were the ideas to this table for them to feast on. These ideas are what are going to shape and mold my children into being good thinkers and to be using wise choices and developing their character, of course, alongside and because of God and the Holy Spirit. So not in their own power will they do it and not in my own power will i teach them but it also makes me think of when she's saying the joiner i sort of retranslated that in my mind to the artist or the drawer instead of sometimes as i do complaining about bad art that i see going around instead of doing that and really condemning the person because of the poor art or the shoddy thing they've made. I can just bear with that, but expect better out of people 
generally. So give them good ideas, such as encouraging people to draw from life. I'll just say that one because it's what's fresh on my mind. But asking people to do oftentimes the harder work or to encourage them to do the harder work, that's how we grow. We fail and we mess up. We are pushed to our current limits and we learn new things. That's how I'm reading that. But if anyone else out there has read that section and made different connections or different assumptions, which I'm sure you did, I'd love to hear about it. We're going to be ending on that today. It's a great way to end the show with Mason's words herself. And this has been the first episode where we talk about why we draw. So expect more of these as I have thoughts and as I better organize and compile them. I will once in a while be dishing out some answers for why. So thank you for listening in today. I hope you're encouraged to go out and draw knowing what you know now. So I will see you all next time. Bye-bye.